Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are ending the book of Numbers. We ended the book of Numbers last week. And now we are here uh, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, at the book of Devarim. And for some reason, you know how you have times in your life where if you're, you're kind of interested in one topic, you start to confront it everywhere. You read an article in the New York Times, then there's a PBS special, then there's the, this, this guy gives a lecture, and it all starts to feed into this whatever it is. Well, that's kind of what's <laughs> happening for me with Moses and Deuteronomy these days. It just seems to be everywhere in my life. Um, and so I'm just going to, I just want to give you a little bit of each of those things. We talk a lot in here about the fact that we never move past the five books, right? We've been doing, at least you have been learning with me for nine years, the same texts from the same five books. I've been teaching them for 22 years. Um, you know how I feel about those texts. You know why I believe it's still important to revisit them every year. And it's not like, oh, we're going to find something new because we've done that for a really long time. We as Jews have done these texts for a couple thousand years, right? So it's not like they're going to get stale in a decade. We always do find something. <laughs> so, but I'm trying to be aware and sensitive to times when we could look to some other text just to, to start giving you a flavor and reminding me of some of those other texts and how they relate to our text or how the rabbis have matched those texts and those themes to the themes of, that we find in Torah. So what I've given you, you have in front of you your usual green copy of the Torah with the, uh, the women's commentary. So that's the green book. So Torah refers to generally, we're talking about, if we're talking specifics, Torah is the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yeah? All right. When we talk about Tanakh, we're talking about Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah, five books of Moses, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ch, you know, they, I go away for a month. And what happens? No whiteboard, no marker. It's like, oh, do we have a rabbi who teaches on Friday mornings? Who has preferences? So, anyway, the Ch of Tanakh is a, is a Kaf. And a Kaf when it takes a dagesh, when a kaf has a dot in the middle, it's a k. When it doesn't have the dot in the middle, for grammatic reasons that you do not need to worry yourselves with, it's a ch, right? It's the same letter, k and ch. Kaf and chaf are the same letters, just whether or not it takes the dagesh. All right, so tanach, Torah, nevim, ketuvim, the writings. When the k comes at the end, dagesh comes out, so it's a ch. Tanach refers to Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. What are the writings? Psalms, uh, Chronicles, Song of Songs. Those are the writings. Taken together, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim is the Old Testament, if you use Christian language. It's the Hebrew Bible, if you want to use scholarly correct language. Um, and it is really our sacred canon. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Now, there's a whole Talmud, right? And all kinds of stuff that comes after Tanakh. It is not like Tanakh, our sacred engagement with text ends at Tanakh. But when we talk about the canon, it is Tanakh. 
That is what you have in front of you in the brown book. Yes? That is Tanakh. So we are going to look a little bit today outside of the five books of Moses to begin. And then we're going to go into Deuteronomy, which is the last of the five books, that, that partial that we're beginning today. So in your JPS Tanakh, I want you to turn to page 831. You can share with each other or go get one from the cart. We're going to read out loud, so it's not like, I mean, if you're a visual learner, you want the text, I get it. That's how I learn. Um, If you're like Judith and you're an auditory learner, you can just listen. I'm really a visual learner. Oh, interesting. I'm having to find stuff. It loses me, so you're going to read it out loud, so I just tune in. So... Judith's going to tune in. I hope others will join her. (laughs) Right? All right, so we're on page 831 in Tanakh. And just so I can always continue to help us be more literate Jews, if you look just like we do in in the Bible, in the Torah, you look at the top of the page to figure out where you are. Yeah? So you look at the top of the page... And you see, what are we in? We're in Nevi'im, right? The little first word on the top left corner says Nevi'im, prophets. This is considered part of the collection of prophets. Interesting, yeah? Because what's the book that we're in? Two Kings. All right. We're in the book of Two Kings, which is part of Nevi'im, part of prophets. That's already like, okay, Jews organize things in really interesting ways. Um, Now, when you say, who wrote Isaiah? Because another prophet. Or Jeremiah. Who, Who wrote, right, the book of Jeremiah? That prophet, who wrote that? The school of Jeremiah. Who wrote Isaiah? The school of Isaiah. The folks who believe a certain thing write the things they want to communicate and that they care about and they place it in the mouth of a prophet. That is not to say some of these prophets were not historical figures. It's not saying that. Jeremiah didn't write the book of Jeremiah. What Jeremiah preached about, the school of Jeremiah wrote down. Recorded loosely, but like added to, interpreted, focused on, fixed, edited, redacted, right? And so then finally the text at some point gets set and that becomes the book of Jeremiah. Yes, sir. Does it relate to the king in some way? So often the prophet is criticizing the king. That's the prophet's job. And we had a wonderful se- session with Micha Goodman at Hartman, who is an amazing teacher. And it is a wonderful thing to sit in front of a master teacher. It was incredible. Yeah, he, he <laughs> thank you, dude. He um, he wrote that book um, about Israel, uh, about sixty-seven, that just came out. What was it called? Beyond sixty-seven, whatever. So Micha Goodman um, was talking about prophecy, and he said, "Prophets do not come to predict the future." 
That is a mistranslation of what it means to prophesy. Prophecy is about changing the future. The prophet Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Why is Jonah sent to Nineveh? To have Nineveh do teshuva and avoid what's coming. The prophet is here to say, if you continue on this path, here's what's going to happen. We don't want that to happen. You never want what the prophet's talking about to happen. (laughs) Right? It's a warning. And it's done hopefully eloquently and passionately enough, using the language of the time well enough, that people change to avoid what's coming. That's the role of the prophet. To reinforce the way everyone will sit under their vine and fig tree. So it's not to say there aren't optimistic visions of the prophet, but it means you have to change your evil ways. Right? So both holding out the vision of everyone peacefully under their vine and fig tree, as well as woe unto you, Israel has become a harlot. Right? So that, that both of those te- are techniques to help get it across to the people. Like right now, I don't know about y'all, but after these last two shootings, I was like, where's the prophet? Right? Get it together, America. Wh- where is that? Where's that message coming from? Who's got the articulation that's going to finally motivate us to do something differently? Because this is what's going to be. And it's only going to get worse. Right? So that that's what the prophet comes to do, is to say, yes, it's something about the future, meaning danger, danger, warning Will Robinson, but it's also about, okay, so, so what do we need to be living in line with? How could we be doing it differently to produce a different result? All children happy, all children well-adjusted, all children fed, all children having their passions nourished and their potholes filled. Right? That's the vision. So there's both a positive vision and a negative vision. And if you don't, send your kid to school with a bulletproof vest. Right? I mean, that's the profit. To get as graphic and as, as poignant as possible to get people to change. That's the whole point of a school of prophecy. All right. So Kings is put in the prophets. Bless these people. It's the other side that's clear. <laughs> really? 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 Kind of question. Yes. So when you say it's the school of each prophet who will get somehow recorded this, right? Is that similar to uh, the New Testament, which is the followers of Jesus that then. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Oh, Um, So, because when we talk about the book of Matthew, it's not the words of Matthew. Right. It's the followers of the teacher, Matthew, the disciple, Matthew. Matthew didn't write that. Those folks didn't write those texts. They were dead when those texts were written. Right? So, um, well, I don't want to get too technical because I don't know Christianity well enough. I shouldn't say Matthew was dead. What I know is that this things get put in the mouth of the disciples that are written much later by their followers, by the school of, right? Fill in the blank. Okay, excellent. Question. Yes, George. How how can I help? You answered the question. 
I love that they said this is the clean side. The five books are either written by the Lord or inspired by him, and people argue who wrote them. The five books are either written by God or inspired by God or what? Or written by others. Or written by others, yes. So there's arguments about that. Correct. There is no arguments. These are the, is that so? That this, this is, the schools of these people wrote it. That would be... Everybody agrees on that. That would be way too simple, George. Um, there is disagreement. The disagreement being, if I say the school of Nehemiah wrote, or Nehemiah, uh, wrote that those texts that are put in the mouth of the character Nehemiah, others would argue fun, a fundamentalist understanding of prophecy is God spoke to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah wrote down the words that God spoke. It is the word of the Lord. It is. it is the word of God. That, that is a fundamentalist interpretation, both of Torah and of Nevi'im, and on some level even Ketuvim. Okay. Right? Even the writings are attributed to the divine. They're, the writers divinely inspired, right? You know, the Psalms, David is inspired by God and writes the Psalms. But we know, of course, David didn't write the Psalms. I'll put of course in in quotes. I know, right? There's a lot of shocking things that get said in here. I I know. Right and left. Bless you, my friend. Did he have a liar? Did he what? Have a liar? Um, David did a lot of cool stuff. Um, Yeah. Thank you. All right. So going back to Tanakh. Can't see that. No problem. Yeah. There we go. Orange tip. <laughs> the eraser stuff, I think, is still wet. No worries. Okay. So, Tanakh, Torah. Excuse me. No, we're re-upping our membership. Can we donate some of our. Please do! Right? Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. The people at home are going, what What are they doing? <laughs> Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim. Right? So Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, this is a kaf, when it starts the word Ketuvim. When it's at the end of a word, the dagesh comes out. So it's a ch. So Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. We're in Nevi'im. We're talking a little bit about the ideas of Nevi'im. I'm trying, it's a very long explanation. First of all, I just think you need to know because it's being literate to know this stuff. It's also because why is kings put in Nevi'im if Nevi'im, if the prophets are actually schools of thought and have an agenda and they're trying to communicate that agenda, what does it already tell us something about kings? That it's in Nevi'im. Kings has an agenda. Who wrote Kings? The school of Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. The school of Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Who wrote Kings? One and two. The Queen. That's another series, which is very, very interesting. What the Queens wrote about the Kings. But 
We don't have those texts, unfortunately. Those would be well read. They, they would be. <laughs> um, interesting that we get the name of every uh, mother of a king when the king is mentioned in one and two kings. We get, and his mother was. Isn't that how a lineage goes? <laughs> through the father. So, um, through the king. Yeah. It's it passed through the king. So then I have to say, which of their thousand wives was the, wife, was the mother of that particular son who becomes king? Because they let some reign for like six months. All right. So, kings. Who's kings written by? What are our sources? In general, J, E, P, and D, yes? Yeah. It's called the Deuteronomic History. The second telling. Kings is part of the Deuteronomic History. The Deuteronomist school wrote Kings. Okay? D is responsible for kings. Now, are there other folks who come along as part of D, the D source, that add to kings? Probably. Is there some source material that D is working with and redacting? Almost certainly. The dating of some of these texts gets very interesting and very confusing. So we're going to look at one of the places that people look to figure out What's up with Devarim, with Deuteronomy? How does it come to us? What's up with it? And we're going to look at Kings, the Deuteronomic history, to see that. Yes? Okay, as you're talking, I keep having this like nagging thought that if this was written by a group of people that were, say, followers of these prophets... And they wrote it, and then years later it's reviewed and talked about. How pure is that that content? What do you mean? So define pure. Pure as in the intent of what the prophet originally said. If you've got all these people throwing their spins on it, and different generations looking at it and maybe tweaking things... I'm just curious how accurate it is from what was originally. All right, so already words like accurate and purity are judgments, right? About when is a message authentic is kind of what I hear you asking. But we read these texts with a Western mind. The Western mind wants to know what was the original Intent of the original teacher. The followers don't care. What did Abraham Lincoln actually mean? What did he actually say? Who cares? For the, for the politicians and the party that follows him, it's about what he said that they heard that means the policy of slavery has to change to blah, blah, blah. Right. What did Abraham Lincoln... It's a terrible example. I'm having a terrible metaphor. But you get the idea. Like, what did he... And you have to think before written letters, before things were on the record. Even if if Lincoln gives a speech, if you don't have a copy of that speech, all you have is what people heard. He gives a speech. He inspires a, a political party and a political movement. People will disagree in that crowd about what he said. 
everybody will kind of take one message, slavery's wrong, let's say. It feels like a bad game of telephone. It's a good game of telephone. It's a good game of telephone. It doesn't matter what he said that is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what he said that still inspires me to go out there and vote for a certain set of policies and advocate in his name for those policies to change hearts and minds. That's the agenda. The agenda is not to be true to Jeremiah. The, right? the work is to use the teaching of the prophet and put it in, in that authority's mouth so that I can change hearts and minds to line up with the ideals the prophet is advocating. Does that make sense? That does. Okay, good. It sounds very reconstructionist, too. It's, very, it's just, it's human. Yeah, it is, and it's human. It's what we do. It's what we do. Like, we, it, what, the, what the prophet says as pure, if you believe it's the word of God, then you have a purity concern, right? We sat with an imam and learned with an imam in Jerusalem who said, we were asking about texts, and somebody in here asked about it last week and said, well, what do they think? You know, what does Islam think about this, that this is not the word of God? And I said, oh, no, 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 absolutely, this is the word of God, according to Islam. It got corrupted in the transmission. The Quran is the latest, purest, truest form of what God is trying to say through the Prophet Muhammad to people now. And it is uncorrupted. Okay? So you see where your, you see, th that's the answer to your question, right? You pick the one that's purest or most authentic, right? And so for people who are concerned about the actual word of God, that could be an issue. But for us who don't take it as fundamentalists, we believe this is written by people. Our job is to look at these texts and say, okay, so what of the agenda? of the Deuteronomic history still speaks to us and challenges us in our time to figure out our relationship to those ideals. So it actually kind of brings you closer because they're, they're kind of giving you a parameter, a guideline of what they believe and you internalize it. Yes, yes. And whoever's the most articulate wins. <laughs> and whoever's the most articulate rabbi Preaching those texts wins on behalf of the agenda. Does that make sense? We don't, it doesn't stop with the printed word. It's, it, it, it's our interpreting it. It's this group leaning into it and saying, okay, what does that mean for us at KI and in the Palisades and in West LA and in America? That's what makes them be relevant at all. Otherwise, they're just texts on a shelf somewhere. George? I like to compare it to the Supreme Court. Except then when the court makes a decision, it is a decision. There is no real decision here because people keep arguing and, and then act at the last points. Yeah, but, but our goals are different. Our goals are different. The Supreme Court has to make a decision. Yes. We don't have to. That's right. That's we have to argue till we feel like we can go home and make a decision yes. when we go to the voting booth. Absolutely. And by the way, Stuff gets overturned yeah, right. at the Supreme Court yes. all the time. It doesn't stop with their decision. Yes. As soon as there's a cogent challenge to that decision, you've got a new set of arguments. If they're wives, they agree to hear those arguments because they really do feel something compelling has been added to the conversation, and they will often overturn, not often, but you know what I mean, that their decision can be overturned. Um, so yes and yes. But, but the difference is in the Constitution, we do have the words 
of the Constitution. Yeah, we can reinterpret as, as our world changes, but we still can always harken back to those original words. I think, I think what you're saying is, what are those original words that we continue to reinterpret? Maybe not. So, and the answer, let's say it's the Constitution that we're talking about. We have a printed version of the Constitution. Everybody signed it, so we agree this is the authentic, original copy. Pure. Pure copy of the words and the intention. We don't know the intentions. We're going to read those into that, right? But here's, all men are created equal. Does it mean men? Right, so, I mean, so... So we can, even if their intention was yes, it meant men, we're going to say that's not our intention and how we're going to use those words. Do you see what I'm saying? So, okay, you have the authentic, pure constitution. So what? We're going to argue about is it still viable? Does men mean men or does men mean human beings? Does it mean black men? Does it mean black women? What about black children? Right? So we, we have to argue about what, do those words still speak to us? And do we need to reconstruct the Constitution in ways that feel in line with our values? The answer is yes. As Americans, we say absolutely yes. And what I'm gonna, I'm gonna go one step further and say, what's the Constitution here? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Our interpreting what we have is what matters. Because we can all agree, everybody has a copy of this. What the original was is lost to us. The original source material for this is lost. All we have is what's preserved here. So this is what was salient enough to stick for a certain time. It got set. And now that's what we will have to work with as a Jewish people, as our constitution forever. We are always adding other writings and interpretations of this. Um, But does does that make sense? So this is the constitution we got. So that's what we're working with. Good question to clarify. So the Torah was written by God or, you know, expressed by God, but were the prophets and the writings, is that from God too? Oh, okay. So so we're looking at this. So, so who are you asking? I'm asking a traditional Jew what they're... A fundamentalist Jew believes all of this is the word of God. All of it. All of it is the word of God. All of it. So, hmm? on textual analysis, that understands the layering of text and the way things get altered uh, over time, what has between that and the notion of purity? The notion of purity is really mythological. I mean, there's no such thing right. as a pure text. Every text is either contaminated by other texts or, in some sense, it's compromised. Right, so we might say informed by other texts rather than contaminated, right? So, right, because every text is in dialogue with everything around it by definition. Everything the author read till that moment of writing this new thing is present in their writing of this new thing. So, like, that, right, so that whole idea is a Western idea that is already, as you said, mythological and not real in any, in any real sense, right? Two more things, and then we're going to try to get somewhere close <laughs> to text. Well, I was just going to say, what we just discussed is classic Jewish study. The drop, the, the surface meaning, the layer, the layer, the layer. It's just classic. There is Beautiful. Thank you, Mark. All right, we good? All right, let's go to Two Kings, part of the Deuteronomic history. 
22. Yeah? Mm-hmm. All right, actually, let's start at, um, you are all on page 831, right? Yep. Go to 25, that top verse. Yeah? All right, Kayla, read, please. The other events of Amon's, Amon's reign and his actions are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. He was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and his son Josiah succeeded him as king. Okay, go on. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah of Bosca. He did what was pleasing to the Lord, and he followed all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not deviate to the right or to the left. All right, so already talk to me about how does, the, how does D feel about David? Venerate. Yeah. Good. Venerates David. The, Deuteron- the Deuteronomist venerates David, the righteous king. Yes? Mm-hmm. How do we know this? Josiah did what was pleasing to Adonai and followed all the ways of his ancestor David and did not deviate to the right nor to the left. Have you heard that phrase before? Didn't deviate about deviating to the right or the left? If you've heard it before, it's because it comes from Deuteronomy. Do not, here is the book, do not add to it either to the right, don't deviate to the right or to the left. That is Deuteronomic language, which proves to scholars that two kings, the author of two kings, is familiar with Deuteronomy. Okay? So Deuteronomy had to be written before kings. Okay? Or the same author wrote both, because it's Deuteronomy's new language. It's not the same language as Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. We know Leviticus is kind of its own thing, right? The priestly text. Deuteronomy has a different language. This is classic Deuteronomy. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Go on, Kayla. Three. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the scribe Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, to the, house, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go to the high priest Hilkiah. and let him weigh the silver that has been deposited in the house of the Lord. What is the house of the Lord? What's the house of the Lord? The temple! Okay. Which the guards of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be delivered to the overseers of the work who are in charge of at the house of the Lord, that they in turn may pay it out to the workmen that are in the house of the Lord for the repair of the house, to the carpenters, the laborers, and the masons, and for the purchase of wood and quarried stones for repairing the house. However, no check is to be kept on them for the silver that is delivered to them, for they deal honestly. So what is happening right now? What is happening? What's going on? Income distribution. Huh? Income distribution. Income distribution. Redistribution. Redistribution. Who's the income with right now? The priests. The priests. Income distribution. We're going to take silver that's been given to the house of the Lord, and we're going to melt it down to pay for what? 
Redistributing of silver to bring in carpenters, woodworkers, stonemasons, right? Drywall specialists, electrical stuff, right? All the people who are going to be working on it's a lot of laborers, right? So a lot of redistributing the wealth. What's it, the congregants are getting an assessment. The congregants are getting an assessment. Well, the congregants already gave their money. Ki is being assessed from its coffers uh-huh. to redo the preschool on behalf of the community. Okay. Uh, you know, whatever savings we have, yeah. right, just done? went to the preschool. Wasn't it just done? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we're doing it again? Oh, no, we're not. Oh, yeah. no, we're not. We don't have money to do it again. Okay, so, um, so, so remodeling, which usually means you're going to be tearing some stuff out and putting some, and putting stuff, some in. stuff in. So I want all that visual in your head as we go on. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the wait, wait, wait. But they say that the, uh, the priests uh, are dealing honestly. No, the, the folks the who are overseeing the laborers, the people who are going to pay the laborers, the form are, do, you'll need to follow up on who's paying the electrician. Like it, it, the, it the no, system is good. The oh, I read it. No check is to be kept for them, for the silver is delivered to them, and they deal honestly. You accept the, what the general contractor says. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. There's no audit. Right. No. Josiah's confident in terms of who's in place. Yes. He's completely confident in the folks who are going to be writing the paychecks to the laborers. He's co- so he's saying, don't mess with my administration of this project. You just worry about the project, right? I, it's my administration that will deal with it, and I completely trust my people. Okay? All right, go ahead. Then the high priest. Okay. Oh, sorry, Kilkia. <laughs> uh, said to the scribe, Shafan. I have found a scroll of the teaching in the house of the Lord. And Kilkia. gave the scroll to Shafan. who read it. The scribe Shafan. then went to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have melted down the silver that was deposited in the house, and they have delivered it to the overseers of the work who are in charge at the house of the Lord. The scribe also told the king, the high priest has given me a scroll. And Shafan read it to the king. Okay. What just happened? They they removed uh, the scroll. They removed the scroll? They found it. They found found a scroll. In doing the renovation. Right, but okay, so state, stop. That's not obvious. (laughs) They found a scroll. How did you find a scroll? Miraculously. <laughs> there's, an art, there's a place where the word is deposited. What do you mean you found a scroll? You lost one? It's Maybe very handy that they found it. it. Ah, so if you found it, it had to have been hidden. If it's hidden and it's just now been discovered, then whatever's written in it, tell me about that. 
is pure, is earlier, and has not been observed. Because you didn't have it to observe. If I don't have the instruction, how do I know what I'm supposed to be doing? So if a scroll was found, it's pure, but we're not doing what it says because we haven't been reading it. But it's possibly... Ah, Very very, good question, Linda. It's possibly very impure. It's possibly very (laughs) impure. We don't know. But what we know is it was given appropriately to the high priest. Right. Yes. That's what you do. You find something in the temple. Oh, look, a scroll. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you take it to? The The high priest. What does the high priest do with it? Gives it to the scribe, the secretary of the king. Because you got to move it from the temple to the king if you want the king to enforce anything in that scroll. Yes? Mm-hmm. You have to get the you have to get the king on board with what the scroll says or else the scroll is completely useless and meaningless. You're going to sit around and read it in the temple? Probably it's going to address the behavior of the nation. And if the behavior of the nation is going to be impacted, you'd better get the king on board. Yeah? So that's what's happening here. So Hilkiah has given me the scroll, says Shaphan, the secretary, and Shaphan reads it to the king. Go on, Kayla. When the king heard the words of the scroll of the teaching, he rent his clothes. And the king gave orders to the priest Hukiah and to Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akhor, son of Michaiah, and the scribe Shaphan, and Asiah, the king's minister. Go inquire of the Lord on my behalf, and on behalf of the people, and on behalf of all Judah, concerning the words of this scroll that has been found. For great indeed must be the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us, because our fathers did not obey the words of this scroll to do all that has been prescribed to us. All right, so how do we know it's pure? What do you do? Josiah, clearly, according to the Deuteronomist, right? We always have to put those words in parentheses. According to the Deuteronomist, Josiah believes the scroll is pure. How do we know that? His face turned white, and he said, uh-oh. His face turns white, he rents his clothes. Renting your clothes is a sign of mourning. What is he mourning for? If I believe what the scroll says is actually the word of God, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it way wrong. And we better get our act together or else. But Josiah doesn't stop with just, I believe it. What does he say? He says, send it out and let people see what they think. Uh-uh. No, no. He, no. Tells, he tells the high priest to please go check with God. Make sure. Oh, go check with God. Ah, <laughs> uh, not the people. And make sure. Go inquire of the Lord. So the high priest gives you a scroll. We found this in the temple, king, your majesty. The king says, thank you, your holiness, high priest. 
Go inquire of the Lord as to whether or not this scroll is truly the word of the Lord. Yes, your majesty. I will go inquire. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. <laughs> and then, all right, so, all right, so we're laughing because on some hand we get what's happening. Yeah. Right? Someone powerful has something, that, an agenda they want to put into action. You go to the person who can do that, and that person says to you, go authenticate it yeah. with your authority. Okay, right? So things haven't changed. The more things change, the more, right? They stay the same, but it gets a little more interesting. So go the on. priest Hilkiah and Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, and Asiah went to the prophetess hold. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Where did they go to inquire of the Lord? To a woman. To the prophetess Holda. The wife of Shalom, a son of Tikva, son of Harhas, the keeper of the wardrobe, who was living in Jerusalem in the Mishnah, um, and they spoke to her. She responded, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Say to the man who sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, I am going to bring disaster upon this place and its inhabitants in accordance with all the words of the scroll which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods and vexed me with all their deeds, my wrath is kindled against this place and it shall not be quenched. But say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, As for the words which you have heard, because your heart was softened and you humbled yourself before the Lord when he heard that I decreed against this place and its inhabitants, that it will become a desolation and a curse. And because you rent your clothes and wept before me, I for my part have listened, declares the Lord. Assuredly, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be laid in your tomb in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster which I will bring upon this place. So they brought back the reply to the king. Okay, so when the king says, go inquire of the Lord about whether or not the scroll is truly the word of God, they go to... They go to a trusted source. Who are you going to go to to authenticate your diamond ring? A trusted source. You're going to go to the expert who everyone agrees. Because if you want to sell that ring to these people and you're going to have an auction, they have to believe the assessment. Or they're not going to bid. You're not going to get your price. I don't care what the expert says. If the people don't believe the expert is an expert... It doesn't matter what they say. They're not going to pay that because they, they don't have authentication. But if the greatest art person in the universe that everyone agrees is the expert says this is an authentic Rembrandt, you will get your asking price or more. It's about whose authority people trust. That's what creates reality. Right? We don't know if it's Rembrandt or not, but if the expert says it is, and that's the person in the room who's proven to have the most expertise in this, and they're rarely wrong or whatever, you, you invest them with authority, and now it's a Rembrandt. That's how it works. Is it a scroll that is actually the word of God? You go to the expert. Who is the expert of the time? Hold up. Well, how do you get to be an expert in 
something so nebulous. So that is a course that we will be offering, I'm sure, next year here at Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> and why, why didn't why didn't the priest why why don't didn't the priest go and pray to God to see whether they would receive some kind of response? So you tell me. <laughs> well, I can tell you. But. Why not? Why not? Because maybe they didn't believe. Maybe they maybe they, they hadn't heard from God in so long. Maybe they just didn't. Think. Somebody had. Yeah, somebody had a long time ago. Oh, no. Hulda has. Hulda has. Okay. She's the prophetess. Okay. She will know whether or not this is the authentic word of God. So it's not that God doesn't speak. It's not that there aren't people who can tune into that radio station. Hmm. But who's who does it seem is trusted to find the right station? Not the high priest. You would think, yeah, you would think it's his job. You would think it's his job, and you would think that's who they'd look to. Clearly, already, no, that is not the system. Clearly, already, the priest is not does not have the same status as the prophet. So has he become a political figure as opposed to a religious? So there are, and I, I don't mean to be smart or sarcastic. But there's literally a school. There's a whole field of study. What was the priesthood? Mm-hmm. And at what time? You're talking an, over a thousand years. Like that people are talking about this and writing about this and arguing about this. Then there's what do we know historically? Not much. What evidence would we have? All we have are texts talking about priests. So when you're talking about such a wide range of texts and viewpoints and historical time periods... What an evolution. So, the, you know, you've got pre-temple priesthood. <clears throat> How long was Israel, like, together, hanging out, doing that whole temple priesthood thing? How long did that go on for? A hundred years. years. Yeah. That's it. So, technically, That's was she a priestess? She's a prophetess. Nevi'ah. So Moshe was not a priest. Moshe was a Navi. Moses was a prophet. Is it safe to say that she was the closest one to God? Yes, it is fair to say they thought she she was was recognized as the one who was best to authenticate whether something came from the divine or not. So I would interpret that as yes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a bit like an attorney. Like I didn't say what I said was. So I'm reading this and the people have been behaving in a way that they feel is aligned with the way God wants them to behave. Now the scroll has been discovered and the prophetess says, aha, we haven't been doing it right, so there's going to be disaster. Why wasn't there disaster when they were doing it wrong all along? So because they didn't know they weren't doing it wrong? And now they're being told, now there's going to be disaster? So I would ask the question in reverse, like as we are wont to do in here sometimes. You're not, your question's not a wrong question. I'm saying, but think from the time, think from the author, think from the agenda. The question isn't, why hasn't it happened till now? What's the question pressing for Deuteronomy? What's the question that's highest and topmost on the mind of D? Why did it happen at all? Whether, what How is. could this happen? Mm-hmm. So when must it be written? Mm-hmm. After it happened. Uh-huh. 
So parts of D are probably written before the exile, but it was redacted, and this is written post-destruction of the temple. So we sometimes have to ask the question, not from the point of view of what they're claiming happened. The scroll was found, the scroll said, and then they had that. It's, it's written after to explain how could the destruction of the house of the Almighty God be destroyed because, turns out, y'all weren't doing what I said, and it's too late. It's too Ignorance late. of the law is no excuse. Hmm? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Hmm. But I, I was just, I could imagine, you know, people not following God's word and, uh, and following other gods, you know, I'm thinking about to follow the destruction of beforehand, like political commentary beforehand, look what you guys are doing, it's almost like maybe the scroll was written, and hey, this is what you guys are doing. And, and also, I don't know, they put such significance in her location in Jerusalem, she, maybe she was just, had a really clear eye of what was going on with her. Well, there's a reason it's there's a reason for the importance of Jerusalem. Why is the temple there? The temple just didn't get there, right? So there's a tension between the north and the south. The north has fallen. Judah is the only place left that has the opportunity to live into the word of God. So they Judah this is a southern text. This is written by a Judahite who doesn't give a crap about the north except to say, y'all had that shrine at Bethel? You had calves at Tel Dan? That's why this is all happening. So that's how they feel about the north. Those Yankees messed it all up. <laughs> Us down here, we still have a chance. We can get it right. We can do it right. Right? It's a Judahite text. <clears throat> Because it's worried about the people of Judah. Some of it's being written knowing they are on the edge. And the rest of it is written after the destruction. Okay. And put in the, in the mouth of Huldah. Right? All right. So I want to go to, to Dana's point. Um, go to 23. So page 833. The king enters into the covenant. Right? takes all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, young and old, and reads them the entire text of the covenant scroll, more Deuteronomic language, which has been found in the house of God. The king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant before God that, that they would follow God and observe God's commandments, blah, 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 blah. All the people enter into the covenant. Verse 4. Then the king ordered... Well, just wait. Just listen to this. The king ordered the high priest, Kilkiah, the priests of the second rank, and the guards of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Adonai... All the objects made for Baal and Asherah. And all the host of heaven. He burned them outside of Jerusalem, blah, 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 blah. He suppressed the idolatrous priests whom the king of kings of Judah had appointed to make offerings at the shrines in the towns of Judah and in the environs of Jerusalem and those who made offerings to Baal, to the sun and moon and constellations, all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the image of Asherah from the house of God. There's a Christmas tree in the temple, people. There's a crash in the temple. <laughs> he brings out the image of Asherah 
from the house of God to the Kidron Valley and burns it in the Kidron Valley and beats it to dust. Does this sound familiar? And scatters it, right? Golden calf, right? This is what you do when you want to really get rid of a fetish from another. You burn it and you pound it into dust. And in our case, God, Moshe made them drink it. But so he scatters it over the burial ground of the common people. That's the worst thing you could do to something. He tore down the cubicles of the male prostitutes in the house of God. What? Wow. what? Wow. Sarah Moskowitz, her jaw just hit the table. <laughs> How old are you, Sarah? Next week, I'll be 92. Next week, Never knew <laughs> there were male prostitutes in the house of Adonai. They right. had their own cubicles. Like, they had a whole wing. And you know they had a shower and a sauna and a changing room. They had to eat somewhere. Where was the king? Where was the king? And this is what David did? No. Because I had Itzik for 72 years of my 92 years. And how did that influence you not knowing? I was satisfied and happy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so to your point, Linda, we're not going to ask why I was satisfied and happy. Now, I'm sitting here learning about male prostitutes in the temple, right? We're not even going to ask, like, what is the... So, personally, I cannot wait to verse me. What did you do? I can't study today. All right, so let's let's finish verse 7, because it it gets better. He tore down the cubicles of the male prostitutes in the house of God at the place where the women wove coverings for Asherah. (laughs) Right there. Right? All right, so Lynn, to your question, to your point earlier, what's been going on? You mean that this is wrong? You mean this is wrong? (laughs) And this is what David did? How long has it been going on? Oh, never, huh? How long has it been going on? How long has this been going on? It's a good long time. Maybe Caleb and Josh or something has gone wrong. Something's gone way wrong. Forget Caleb and Joshua. It's gone wrong since David. You don't have to go that far back. David was righteous. What, where, where, where did they go? Where did this go so wrong? So but what's worse is it doesn't seem to suggest that the kings had any issue with this being wrong. So when people, and I'm serious about this, I know I'm going to sound like I'm making a joke, and I sort of am, but I'm sort of not. When people ask me, is it okay for us to have a tree in the living room as Jews, this is the conversation. At what point does it become syncretistic worship? Right? At what point is it not just a tree anymore? Why do you want the tree? Because everyone has an Asherah? It's pretty. It's pretty. Okay, there's lots of things that are... Right, so why do they want the tree? They want the tree because of the power the tree has... And that power is what I'm concerned about bringing into a Jewish home. Mm-hmm. 
Why do you want it? Because everyone else has one. Okay, everyone else has a Lexus. Do you drive a Lexus? No, why not? Well, I, wait, so what, it's not just that everyone else has one. It's that everyone else has one and fill in the rest of that sentence. And for each family, it's a little different. And they look so happy. Everyone has one and their kids love it and they gather around it. It's not the tree. It's what the tree symbolizes. It's what the tree means. I'm like, can you gather around the menorah? But, but do you see what I'm saying? That we look at this and go, this is horrifying. But really, how many Jews do you know that have a Hanukkah bush? Or that have a tree? Right? It's the same. We are not so horrified by that. We go, okay, it's a tree. It was originally pagan. We make up all kinds of excuses. But people three generations from now might look back at that practice and go, I cannot believe Jews had a symbol of the birth of Jesus Christ in their homes. <laughs> right? Because to them, it's now something so different. But at the time, it seemed innocuous. Everybody does it. It's not really about Baal. It's not really about Asherah. We like the pole. The pole's pretty. It's a pole. Someday it'll be used for dancing. It's a pole. It's not really about the goddess. Really. Right? So, even for our neighbors who worship Asherah and Baal, they're not really that religious. They just like the pole. So, so we have one. So what's the big deal? That's exactly the, I believe, it's almost exactly the same analogy. It just wasn't a supercharged for them because they'd been around it their whole existence. And they were actually worshiping. Well, some people were, but that's not us. Those are Jews for Jesus. They stepped over the line. Those people sacrificing to Baal, they stepped over the line. But, but we just have a, you know, an, an altar in the neighborhood. So the local Baal people can use it. We have an altar yeah, instead of sacrificing animals. What? We, we, are, we have an altar instead of sacrificing animals to God. So it's like we, in our tradition, we're replacing something that we wouldn't do with symbols. And so, you know, it, we don't care about sacrificing uh, animals anymore. We just care about the deeper meaning of the symbol. But that's what they cared about, too. They didn't care about sacrificing animals. They cared about the deeper deeper symbology of the blood. Right. Nothing's changed. I'm just saying we are horrified when we read this. And we should be because it's like, wait, what? First of all, because no one told us. First of all, because no one told us. The temple, that was pure. That was Judaism paradigmatically at its best. And we long for the third temple. What they didn't tell us was what was going on in that temple the whole time. The same stuff that they accuse the synagogue of being about organized religion. Right? It's so corrupt. It's so blah, 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 all this money going to. Okay, guess what? The, what do you think is different than what we've always done? Or there's corruption here. Or there's, there's always corruption. Who's going to own the responsibility for cleaning it up? D. D says, the school of Deuteronomy says, this is wrong, people. And we have said it all along, but now, mamash, it's got to stop. 
And what did it take? It took someone in power who believed that, according to the Deuteronomist, let's keep that in big parentheses, according to the Deuteronomist, that is King Josiah. King Josiah, according to Dean, huh? He planted the school. (laughs) According to Dean, it's possible. So, according to the Deuteronomist, King Josiah was a believer and starts to overhaul the entire temple system. Not only the temple system, but there's priests, there's priests hanging out, worshiping Baal over there. And in the environs of Jerusalem, what does that mean? The suburbs. People in the suburbs were getting a little too far away from the central authority of the, of the temple, and then they're doing all kinds of stuff. So Josiah comes in, according to D, and wipes the slate clean. Right? Okay. So that is, according to D, what was supposed to happen, and it's too late. It's too late. God has made a decision, and it's done. Now, what's interesting, and I'll leave us here, what's interesting about this, one thing that's interesting about this, is don't we always talk about the Deuteronomic theology as being blessings and curses? If you behave, your fields will flourish, your flocks will flourish, you'll live to a ripe old age. If you don't behave, what's going to happen? Your children will be carried off as slaves, Right? You will see them, your wives ravished. Right? We're so used to that with Deuteronomy. What scholars are pointing to with looking at kings is kings is written by the Deuteronomist and complicates our understanding of the Deuteronomic theology being quite so simple. Because if you follow my laws, boom, it's going to go well with you. If you don't, Boom, destruction. What does this say? It says everybody was violating the law. It says there was destruction. Yeah, we got to explain it. It says there's going to be destruction. Why people? It says we tried to correct it, but we're still going to destroy you. Yes. yes. Oh. So are we- it complicates the Deuteronomic simplistic <laughs> theology by saying Josiah and the people did shuva. They rent their clothes, they fasted, they renewed the covenant, they got rid of all the idols and all of the other stuff, and what happened? Disaster. Disaster anyway. So are we too late? (laughs) So it complicates the idea that Deuteronomy is a simplistic theology that says, if you do X, you'll get Y. If you do this, you'll get that, and that's it. It's more complicated. Even the Deuteronomist understood that sometimes, even though we're going to do the right thing, doesn't mean God is going to no. show up and make it all okay for you. Because what about what they have done? They have been doing the wrong. But it's even... So even if you yes, correct, but, but it, Yes, but I guess what I'm saying is the conclusion is the thing that complicates the Deuteronomic theology. Not what they've done before, but the fact that they do tshuva and they do the right thing and are living in accordance with the law. Still, it's still, not going to get them. Still bad things happen. But and, still and bad things know. happen. And the, the D, a simple reading of D would say that can't happen. That can't be. 
Because they did the right thing. And so all I'm saying is scholars say this is how we know the Deuteronomic theology was a little more complicated than just mix these two things together, red and blue, and you get purple. Right? It's just, it's not that simple. And anyone who wants to really say, no, it's really clear in the book of Deuteronomy, you have to look at kings <coughs> to, to understand that even D understood things are just more complicated right, than than even Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy's there to preach and to try to convert and to push the agenda, but King says, and we understand, it's, it's just not quite that simple. Right. Could right? it possibly be that things had gotten so bad and the fact that even though they tried to correct the problem, there were still too many people that had done wrong and now, 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 now you're veering. Now you're veering. Am I veering? You're veering. Because now it doesn't matter. Who knows? I'm just wondering what they about the need to wipe the slate clean. Why, why the Josianic reform? No. Why there was destruction after they did the correction? Who are you asking why to? Of whom are you asking why? You have to be asking God. <laughs> D and bad things still. D happen. says, according to Kings, yeah, cause God's already pissed. It's too late. Too little, too late. Without any why, God, who are you going to ask why from? God. Okay, go. Right, like you know what I'm saying. Like D's not D doesn't give us any more than that. Kaha. That's how it is. So your assumption is. That even if you do write ex post facto, it's necessary but not sufficient. That helps with the Holocaust for sure. Exactly the same set of questions asked after the Shoah, after the Holocaust. How come? How could it be? Right? And then you've got everybody coming up with their answers. And D would say, yeah, you were living pretty good lives, but you'd really, really messed it up. And then, okay, so some of you were like coming back and trying to figure it out and doing it right, but really, too little, too late, and right. But there was no reform before the Shoah, right? The same way, we're not sure there was a reform before the destruction. What we know is afterwards, people were writing about. How could it have happened, and what might it, right? So, does that, does that make sense? It's about writing after the Holocaust, looking back. Well, what were the Haredi Jews doing? Well, they were loyal and faithful, and they got slaughtered too, right? Oh, it's all those Jews who assimilated, right? And believe me, this is what people did. How could God let this happen? And the same answers that happened in the wake of the destruction of the temple happened after the destruction of European Jewry. The same thing. The answers that we live into may or may not be different. May or may not be different. Most of the people exiled after the destruction of the temple were gone. They, they were assimilated into whatever populations they were moved into. They didn't say, oh, we'll... we'll do tshuva and we'll repent and maybe God will take us back and rebuild our land. That was a tiny little portion of the Jewish people. Most of them were gone. 
And I try to remind myself of that every time I think about how many Jews come to me and say, I have nothing to do with any of that stuff, not after the Holocaust. Forget it. You're going to try to even talk to me about God? You're so naive, Rabbi. Right? And our response, I believe, has to be, for me, there wasn't a God who could stop it. That's my answer, right? Sitting in a room with learning at Hartman with Orthodox Jews well, was not their answer. What about the problem of punishment descending from generation to generation? That, that is an so old concept that absolutely talk about it as karma. Doesn't bother us when we talk about karma in general. It's like things, what goes around comes around, and if you mess it up, generations after you're going to pay for it. There's a school of thought that, that is okay with that. There's other schools of thought who say that, no. And some say that actually is, is answering another tradition that said it goes on, that that punishment goes down for a lot further, and our God is a forgiving God, and so it stops at the fourth generation. I mean, again, you have to look at texts in their context and what they're answering, what they're responding to, and who argued with that theology. You know, So it's not monolithic. Um, but I feel like for us as Jews today, the same way there was a destruction after... Whatever happened or didn't happen as an attempt, because remember, it's written afterwards. We don't actually know what exactly what happened. We only have the Deuteronomist's understanding of what Josiah did or didn't do. Some scholars say he was just doing an administrative reform and centralizing worship and centralizing power. Had nothing to do with the religious reform. But my point is, once the destruction happens, the people have to decide a response. And for the people of Israel, they were decimated. And only the poorest of the poor were left to be field hands. It was complete devastation, complete assimilation of most of the people who were carried off, which meant most of the Jews, most of the Israelites. And what happened after the second destruction is that we already had a thriving community in Babylonia. And it was the diasporic community that saved the Jewish people. So what I believe is our responsibility after the destruction of the Shoah, our responsibility is to make sure this diasporic Jewish community flourishes and thrives. Israel is somebody else's project. I'm involved in it. I care about it. I'm enthusiastic about it. It's not my project. This is my project. Because they need us. And I hope they're listening. Because um, some of them don't think they do. But they do. And we need them. But we each need to be working on our own communities, and we need to be building communities like this of learning and caring and understanding and literacy and, and a living Judaism for all of our children and grandchildren, whether they're ours actually or not. They're the Jewish people's next generations. There has to be something to give them. There has to be something that they participate in that they go, oh, I want this, and I want this for my family, and I want this for my kids. And I want to be able to transmit it to other people's kids by living it and being an example that they don't even, they won't remember your names or your faces, but they'll remember how they felt when they were here. That's what we can do. That's our sacred obligation. And I'm so grateful that I have your partnership in seeing that that, that is what we are. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.